The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. Do you want to live to be 100? And if yes, why? And if not, why? Hey, everyone. From LinkedIn News, this is In the Arena, a podcast exploring human potential. I'm Leah Smart, and every week you'll find me right here in conversation with bright minds and brave hearts, learning how we can improve our lives and our world by transforming ourselves. So the science of longevity is a field I've taken some recent interest in. Questions like, how do we stay healthier and more vibrant longer? And what simple choices we can make to do that? I love anything simple. So I want to like uncomplicate this confusing world of health and longevity. My guest today is Dr. Mark Hyman. He just released his new book called Young Forever. And Dr. Hyman is the head of strategy and innovation at Cleveland Clinic. He's a multiple best-selling author, and he is the leader in the field of functional medicine, which, if you're not as familiar with it, it focuses on the root causes of ailments and diseases instead of just their treatment. And he says there's something that you do every single day that can prevent and reverse disease. You eat. According to Mark, what you put on your fork is more powerful than anything you'll ever find at the bottom of a prescription bottle. He says that food isn't just calories, it's actually more like instructions that control the operating system of your biology. So in his book, Dr. Hyman challenges us to really reimagine our biology, our bodies, our health, and the process of aging in the way that we know it today. And what he suggests is that if people just implemented some simple practices from the science of longevity and functional medicine, it's possible not just to live, but actually to thrive and continue to contribute our gifts to the world well into our 90s and even our hundreds. Alrighty, so here's Dr. Mark Hyman on why he's pursuing and sharing the revolutionary science in the field of longevity. I think that's really what's driven sort of everything that I've done. It continues to drive what I'm doing. And, you know, the space of longevity is not about a hedonistic pursuit to live longer and be narcissistic. It's about how do we deal with the current health crisis? How do we deal with the problems of chronic disease that are creating so much suffering? And how do we create a society of vibrant, healthy people as we get older that can contribute and lend their wisdom and value rather than ending up discarded members of an elderly generation that are not valued? I was shocked to read you said the hallmark of aging is disease. It doesn't have to happen. And I'm 35, but I'm becoming a lot more obsessed with like, how do we live better, longer, and tracking that back to food and all the systems that exist that keep us from getting what we need, but then also all the ways that we can get what we need. So let's just unravel. How is it that aging isn't a necessity? Yeah, well, getting older is, you can't change that. You know, the biological clock keeps ticking unless you go into outer space. But (laughs) you know, you're going to get chronologically older. The question is, do you have to get biologically older at the same rate, or can you even reverse your biological age? And are the things that we've come to accept as normal as a consequence of getting older, frailty, decrepitude, disability, dysfunction, disease, are these inevitable consequences of getting older, or are they something wrong? They're dysfunctions that can be treated and reversed, and that we can literally reverse our biological age and enjoy a more vibrant, energetic, 
engaged life for a lot longer. And whatever that's till 80 or 90 or 100 or 120 or 150, we don't know yet. And what's super exciting is that for the first time, we're actually understanding that these conditions are not in inevitable parts of getting older to say that if the majority of people implemented the simple practices of what we now know are embedded in longevity science and functional medicine, that they could live at least 90, 100 years old. And that's not like a pipe dream. That's something that's achievable right now. 120, 150, that needs a few more advances, but I think we're going to get there pretty soon. <laughs> are we ready for that? Is this I mean, it depends. For you and I to be 150? If I'm, if I'm riding my bike and skiing and making love, you know, why not? <laughs> and if I'm teaching a whole it. new yeah. generation of physicians about medicine and the new paradigm, why not? I love that. I've heard you say this before, your biological age versus your chronological age. Can you describe mm. what that is? For sure. Before I do that, I just want to say, look, I'm 63 years old. In, in my childhood memory, 63 was like an old person. Mm -hmm. And I'm just figuring shit out. <laughs> I'm like figuring out how to be happy and how to love better and how to live my life in a way that's got more integrity and mm -hmm. to just be more connected to the things that matter to me. And it's a shame if I'd have to die once I finally figured it all out. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where I'm going with this. It's like, how do we then create the value that's happened in our society with wisdom as we get older? And not everybody gets wiser as they get older, but most of us do. And then leverage that for amazing results in society. Biologically, I'm 43 last time I checked, which was last year. So basically I'm chronologically 63, but I'm 20 years younger biologically. And that's measured through this test called DNA methylation, but there's other, lots of other biomarkers we can look at and create inferences from. But this is a very exciting new advance in the science of longevity because before we never really had a metric to look at to say, are we doing the right thing? Is this diet or this exercise program or this supplement or this drug actually doing anything? Now we, for the first time, have a metric that we can use to track over time and see the impact of anything we choose to do, other than obviously how we feel and how we function. First of all, I think a lot of people approach diet culture and go, what am I doing? They get it wrong. What I love about your work is it's not diet culture, it's the lifestyle that you lead. So how do we keep thriving into our chronological older age? If that's the hub of what you're doing, what are the spokes on that lifestyle that get us to a place where we can be basically 20 years younger than our chronological age? Yeah, well, I, I wish, you know, this was going to be some giant revelation to people, <laughs> um, but it's the obvious No stuff. new information, it's I know. <laughs> what we eat, and that, and the, what we eat is a big, a big rabbit hole we can go down. Exercise, and also there's nuances of how and what type of exercise to do and when. Stress management, how we handle our thoughts, our minds, our mindset, our beliefs, our attitudes, which have a huge impact, our meaning and purpose, and then our sleep. So those are four enormous pillars that will stand up the house of longevity. Then there's all this other fun stuff from hormesis practices like hot and cold therapy to supplements to more advanced fun stuff. But the reality is that the basic things that we know scientifically work are available to almost everybody and cost almost nothing. I mean, you have to eat, so there's cost to food. But other than that, it's pretty free. So tell me about the free stuff first. 
So what we eat is important. And I think people think, oh, it's difficult and expensive to eat well. And I think there are truths to that. And there are some areas where it's very difficult and challenging. I was in Cleveland and you know met with a young woman whose like mother had to like take two buses an hour each way to get some vegetables for her family. So that that's the reality of that. But for most of us probably in this country, making good choices can be done on a budget. And and that means eating real food. Uh, you know, fruits and vegetables can be expensive, but there's cheaper varieties of each one. Beans and grains are pretty darn cheap. Nuts and seeds, little more expensive, but again, they're pretty nutrient dense and go a long way. There are cheaper cuts of animal protein. Eggs are pretty cheap and real healthy. So there's a whole way of eating real food that doesn't have to be raised grass-fed beef or bison from Montana and some heirloom tomato from some guy's farm in upstate New York. It can be stuff that's accessible. Now, the more you can include phytochemicals that are medicinal in your diet, the better you are. And that that's that's a bit more challenging because these phytochemicals are the molecules of health. There's a million of them in fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, beans and grains, and they are incredibly powerful. For example, there's a plant called Himalayan tartary buckwheat, which is grown in the Himalayas. It's got 132 phytochemicals, which have immune regulating properties or anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, have longevity, life extending properties, and you can make pancakes out of it. I think there's incredible foods that we can start to incorporate and find that will actually upgrade our biology. So eating lots of phytochemicals, low sugar and starch, and getting rid of the killers goes a long way to fixing everything. If you just get rid of the bad stuff and start to incorporate some of the good stuff, it's really huge. And the bad stuff is, for longevity, is sugar and starch. Your body has no difference between a bowl of sugar or a bowl of cornflakes below the neck. Like, it's just the same. A piece of white bread, bowl of sugar, same thing. So I think we don't even realize that. We, oh, I'm having a bagel. It's healthy. Well, no, it's not. Although I love a bagel. Um, And everybody loves bread, but it's highly (laughs) addictive. It's full of glyphosate. The wheat we eat is not wheat we ate. If you go back and have heirloom grains, and I don't know if you've been to Germany, but they have this sort of deep, rich, dark breads that they make with whole grains and not flour, just actually the whole grains. I don't know exactly how they make it, but you can't cut it with a knife. You need one of those deli meat slicers just to cut a slice of bread. It's a bread you can eat. Okay, I need to pause you right here because this is exactly what scared me when I first started going into this stuff. I live in New York City. I'm surrounded by some of the quote-unquote best-flavored restaurants in the world. I will not say healthiest, right? The social culture of New York and a lot of these cities is to eat and to drink. And so during COVID, I had this experience where I was like, we were all alone. I wasn't going to restaurants. I had a very different uh, lifestyle because I was by myself. And so I was making these different decisions. And a lot of it was based on the work that you do before I read your book. What happened for me was seven months ago, a lot of things changed in my social life. I got more social. I was leaving the house more. And you sort of get pulled back into the social pressure of eating and drinking in the way everybody else does. And then it gets harder and harder to like yank yourself out. You know, I think this is part of the challenge of finding out like this is what I should be doing, but then trying to reinsert yourself back into your communities where they may not know and you don't want to be the person who's like, you ate a bagel, you know? So so then you end up eating the bagel. <laughs> no, I eat a lot too. And I know I'm not 300 pounds and I think there's a way to do it where you can occasionally have an indulgence or something fun or whatever you like to eat. My rule is, you know, if it's real food, I'll eat it, right? If it's some you know, Italian pasta at some fancy restaurant from some Italian wheat. I mean, I'll, sure, I'll try it. But if it's like a piece of Wonder Bread, you're never going to see that past my lips. If it's a Twinkie, I'm never going to eat that. So I think there's a line that I never cross. But within the realm of like fun, delicious foods that are out there, sure. The key is to understand it's really what the bulk of your diet is and the majority is. And when you go out, there are always things on the menu that you can enjoy that are still amazing and delicious without being bad for you. You know, it's always good 
kinds of protein, lots of veggies. I'll order two or three sides of veggies. I'll skip the bread basket. You know, they always ask you for a drink because they know that it makes you eat more. The more bread you eat at the beginning, the more wine you drink, the more you'll order at dinner. It's a kind of a well-known phenomenon. So I think the key is just make better choices. Okay, so we don't have to go like all in or all out, buy all organic food from like grass-fed. And you no. know, we can still show up in the places we show up, but just yeah. slightly change our decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, though, if you're like a type two diabetic who's 300 pounds, no, you probably can't eat sugar, flour. You can't kind of deviate or else your body will go into a tailspin. So when you get metabolically resilient, you can have more of what I call metabolic degrees of freedom. But the more you've gotten into the stages of disease, the more aggressive you need to be. Like Benjamin Franklin said that very clearly, announced that prevention is worth a pound of cure. So a lot of us need a pound of cure. And with your study of longevity and these four pillars, can we reverse what's already happening if we are in a state For of disease? Sure. For sure. I just give an example of a patient who came to Cleveland Clinic where I work and she was 66 years old. Her body mass index was 43. 30 is considered obese. 25 is overweight. So she was severely obese. She had type 2 diabetes for 10 years on insulin. She had heart failure on tons of medications, had multiple stents, high blood pressure. Her kidneys were starting to fail. Her liver was fatty. She was on $20,000 of copay medication. Who knows what wow. the healthcare system was paying. She was seen by the best doctors, getting the best drugs, the best treatments. And the problem was food. She had, was eating a processed diet most of her life. That's what her family taught. And she stayed with it. And it was killing her. And within three months, she was off all her medications. Her heart failure, her kidney failure, her liver, and her diabetes were completely reversed. And in a year, she lost 116 pounds. So, you know, we're not talking just about prevention here. We're talking about taking people with really end-stage conditions and using food as medicine to reverse it. And, you know, she wasn't even that aggressive with lifestyle. She... You know, started to be able to walk and started to be able to do some exercise, but she wasn't like going to the gym three hours a day. So it's really power of what's on our plate. And what I always say is that what you find at the end of your fork is more powerful than anything you'll find in a prescription bottle because there's no drug on the planet that could have done what we did to her with food. So medication is keeping us alive. Food is healing us. Yeah. I have one question that I'm curious about. I feel like BMI has been challenged and I've heard all sorts of like challenges around BMI with body structure. Like I'm someone who my frame is different than a lot of other women's frames. Yeah. I'm tall and I'm also athletic. I grew up athletic, so I was never like a skinny person. And I think culturally we in America specifically, we are very good at making people who are not skinny feel like, oh, you're fat and therefore you know, it's not okay. So I think there's a big shift that's happening right now where we're all trying to figure out what's okay as far as our weight, as far as our BMI, and then like, yeah, yeah. where is our culture gotten in the way of this? I mean, BMI is just a one marker that is body mass index. It's basically your, mm -hmm. a calculation based on your height and your weight. So, you know, Shaquille O'Neal had a BMI of 35, which is considered obese. Was he obese? Mm -hmm. No. I mean, when he no. was an elite athlete, he had very little body fat <laughs> right. and he was super fit. He just was like a big man with lots of muscle. On the other hand, this woman was five foot three and, you know, 250 pounds and she had to be a my 43. So it's really about your muscle and your body composition and where the fat Got is. It. So I look at body composition analysis as a way to look at what's happening. You can say, oh, my body mass is 22, but you could be 50% body fat. <laughs> you know, as you get older... <laughs> Right. You, I, you call it a skinny fat people and the skinny fat people are out there. And as we get older, we basically marbleize our muscle like ribeye. And so when we're younger, we could be, let's say, normal weight with a BMI of 25, but the same weight when we're 65. And if we haven't done what we need to do to build and maintain muscle, which is the currency of longevity, then we will end up with all these poor outcomes and diseases like diabetes and heart disease and poor cholesterol and high mm -hmm. cortisol and low sex hormones and all this stuff that happens as we age as a result of losing muscle. So 
I agree. Body mass index is not great. With that said, I think metabolic health is a much better biomarker, which from my perspective is the biggest threat we have today. And according to new data, only 6.8% of Americans have good metabolic health. That means over 97% of Americans poor metabolic health, meaning high blood sugar, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, are overweight, or have had a heart attack or stroke. And that to me is terrifying. So there's a body positive movement. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, one of the challenges with this is that there's a huge stigma against obesity. I mean, kids have a you know better chance of being nice to a kid who's in a wheelchair than a kid who's overweight, right? And I think that creates a huge problem for our mental health and yeah. as a culture, it has a huge impact. And the reason that stigma exists is because of the belief that it's all about willpower, that if you are overweight, it's because you overeat and you don't exercise enough. It's all about mm -hmm. calories in, calories out, and it's your fault you're overweight or fat. And that's just nonsense according to the science. The science is very clear that the quality of the food you eat matters and that not all calories are the same and that when you eat certain foods, they're highly biologically addictive. They change your biochemistry and they actually drive weight gain. It's really the food environment that's the problem. In America, in the 60s, African-Americans were far healthier than whites and far slimmer. Now it's the opposite. They have double the rates of diabetes, four times the rate of amputations, you know, much higher rates of kidney failure. And what happened since the 1960s? I'm, I was born in 59, so that's in my lifetime. It wasn't mm -hmm. some genetic aberration. It has to do with the food environment and the toxic food environment and the marketing and the promulgation of processed and junk food to the population, and particularly to targeting the poor and also mm -hmm. these big food companies target brown and black people and heavily market to these groups. And then we saw that with COVID. Why were, for example, in some communities, African-Americans, 30% of the population, but 70% of the deaths. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's many reasons for that, but it, but a lot of it had to do with their poor metabolic health. We kind of have to not just go, oh, well, you know, it's fine to be, what is it, healthy at any weight. And I think that that's a mistake. It sort of ignores the reality of poor metabolic health, which you can have either when you're skinny or if you're overweight. Now, there are some people who are overweight who are basically more healthy metabolically, and that's okay. But that's that's the exception, not the rule. Okay. So if only 6.8% of us have it, what is it? <laughs> this is not... The only definition, but this was the criteria they used in this study, was your blood sugar was normal, your blood mm -hmm. pressure was normal, your cholesterol was normal, your weight was normal, and you didn't have a heart attack or a stroke. <laughs> That's a low bar, I would say, <laughs> right? I think, you know, from my perspective, it's it may be even more. I mean, even though the 75% of us are overweight, you know, if 3% of us are metabolic and healthy, that means there's another almost 20% that are skinny fat, right? We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, Dr. Hyman talks about one of my favorite topics, the Blue Zones, where the largest group of people over 100 are still thriving. I want us to know their secrets. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back with Dr. Mark Hyman, 14-time New York Times bestselling author and author of the just-released book, Young Forever. All right, let's keep going on these four pillars of longevity. Yeah. I mean, I think the, you know, the blue zones are really quite interesting places. And I visited them, Sardinia, Nicaragua, and there's Nicoya Peninsula uh, and Loma Linda, but I haven't been to Okinawa yet. There are a lot of things in common. I mean, they ate all local sort of healthful foods that were unprocessed. They ate a lot of wild foods. They ate phytochemical rich foods. They moved naturally as a course of just moving about their lives. They had deep senses of connection, community. They really enjoyed life and they had meaning and purpose. And those are things that are like more intangible, uh, but those are, those are powerful things to think about. For us, we have a very disjointed culture. We have a lot of disconnection, lack of meaning, existential suffering and depression and mental health issues. And, you know, all those impact our genes, our epigenetic programming, our DNA methylation patterns, which affect our longevity and our biological age. And those are all things that, you know, we can start to address in our life by things that may not seem as relevant for longevity, but like building community. During COVID, I, we were all isolated, but I reached out to like, you know, six old friends who we don't see each other that often because we live in different parts of the world. We hang out here and there, but I said, hey, why don't we all hang out every week on Zoom and have, you know, maybe every other week for an hour. And they're like, let's do every week for two hours. And it's been amazing. And most of us make almost all the meetings and and we have a container every week to check in, to be seen, to be known, to be understood, you know, to be asked questions that maybe help us think about our lives in different ways and help us grow. That's really valuable. And I, I wouldn't underestimate the power of that. And that, that doesn't cost a lot. I think we have a disjointed culture in that we also don't understand that all of these things are connected. Like all of these things are connected. It's like when we think about our health, we just think about our food. We are just starting to consider, you know, I think more popularly that mental health matters. And it's about like going from being depressed or being anxious to not being anymore. So like where my joy comes from is really thinking about how we thrive. You know, when you mentioned community, immediately I went back to your pillar of stress. Is that what you think this is connected to? Or is there something else we need to be doing? I mean, one of the benefits of connection communities that helps mitigate stress in your life, right? Mm -hmm. the more social isolation, loneliness is one of the biggest risk factors for death and aging. So that alone helps reduce the stress response in the body. And then there's, you know, stress management techniques, whether it's cuddling, which actually calms your nervous system, brings you in a parathetic mm. state and activates your epigenetic programming to reverse your biological age, literally. And this has been shown in many studies to things like meditation or breath work or yoga or, or other things that help to sort of discharge stress. One of my favorite ways is exercise. I mean, mm -hmm. think about what exercise is. Is. We usually were like running to something or running from something. So it was really <laughs> stressful. So we actually burned off all these stress chemicals that got activated. And then like extremes, you know, our bodies are so used to being this perfectly thermoregulated, controlled environments in our modern world. And we've disrupted our normal circadian rhythms. We've disrupted our normal ability to manage different kinds of physical stresses. So I like to throw myself into physical stresses like a sauna or an ice bath or 
cold shower in the morning. You know, like it sounds awful, but actually these, these practices are well studied and they, they activate these ancient longevity systems, which our bodies are used to having to deal with. I use hot and cold therapy to help manage stress. Obviously, getting a massage because I'm lazy. So it's a, it actually this is a great way to kind of reset hey, your nervous lazy. system. <laughs> well, you know, I just lay there on the table and somebody else relaxes me. I like that meditation. I have to sit there and have to do my mantra. Do it's something. Like, oh, yeah, right, work. right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. It is active rest. We have to find what works for us and what you know. Prayer is another way. Different rituals were another way. Journaling is another way. Amazing. There was a one study where they looked at just. People journal their authentic inner dialogue, their feelings, their life for 20 minutes a day. They studied asthmatics and they studied people with rheumatoid arthritis, um, which are inflammatory diseases and aging is an inflammatory disease. They were able to dramatically improve objective biomarkers of these diseases like pulmonary function tests and inflammatory biomarkers just through the simple practice rather than like, you know, having another group that was a control group that just sort of wrote 20 minutes, but like what they yesterday and what their sort of superficial life was. But when you mm-hmm. actually really reflect on their life deeply, it was profoundly healing. So you have to find what works for you. But another one that I love being in nature is a huge medicine for me. I just took a beautiful walk around the neighborhood. I was feeling a little stir crazy up in the winter here in the Berkshires. And I just felt completely reset, revived, and just being in the woods and by the river and watching the snow was beautiful. Mm. So, you know, I think some of this can have a tendency to feel overwhelming for people or I'm too busy to blank. What do you say to those people? I don't know. I mean, I, I think we're all busy. I think the question is, uh, check your screen time <laughs> you know, on your phone. Uh, I met this guy the other day who was a CEO of a major $6 billion company. And he showed me his like Garmin watch. And he, he's like, VO2 max was just off the chart, which is a very important metric that measures your fitness level. And it's highly correlated with longevity. He's 53 years old and he runs a $6 billion company. I'm like, how is this possible? He's like, well, I live at the bottom of the hill and I ride my bike every day to work up the hill. And it's like 2,000 feet of elevation because he's in Switzerland. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> okay. I said, how much do you exercise every day? Oh, about two hours, three hours. I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's really about our priorities, what we value, what matters to us, whether we want to watch TV or be on Instagram or Facebook or waste our time. If we, we actually measured what we spend our time and even our money on. We, we might think twice about it because it, it is something we can never get back is our time. So it doesn't have to take long. For example, I, I have a routine. I wake up, uh, depending on my schedule, as you wake up, I'll journal for, um, you know, maybe 10, 15 minutes. I'll meditate 20 minutes and then I'll do a 30 minute workout um, at home and jump in the steam, which I have on for 10 minutes, ice bath for two minutes. And it kind of in an hour ish, I've kind of done a lot of practices in a day that really helped me set the day and activate a lot of this stuff. So, you know, it's really about what matters. I've got a lot going on. I have, you know, multiple things happening. I have two practices, you know, writing books, a podcast. I mean, I could list goes on and yeah. on and <laughs> it's about priorities, what matters to you. So I believe meaning and purpose are incredibly important. I actually saw something you posted not long ago about um, how important it is to find that. I want to know how you found it. If you look at what would happen if we eradicated cancer and heart disease from the face of the planet, and that was just didn't exist anymore, which is the number one and two killers around the world, how much longer would we live as a population? Five to seven years, if we're lucky. And if you have meaning and purpose, your life extension is seven years. So basically having meaning and purpose is as powerful on a population level as curing heart disease and cancer, which we spend billions and billions of dollars to. You know, I don't know. I've always been sort of driven to sort of find meaning and, you know, I'm Jewish. So it's always about the question and the seeking and 
figuring things out and been part of my culture. You know, in my 30s, I got really sick and I had to figure out how to reverse engineer way, my way back to health. And that led me on a quest to discover different ways of healing. And that's when I came upon functional medicine and kind of the rest is history. I've, I've taken that and run with it and have been an advocate for this new paradigm of, because when we take away the things that are causing imbalance in the body, the body doesn't like, like processed food, junk food, bad diet, stress, toxins, allergens, bad bugs in our gut, for example. And we add in the things that our bodies need to thrive, the ingredients for health, right? right? Nutrition, nutrients, balance of hormones, light, air, water, movement, love, connection, meaning, purpose, all these things, then our bodies naturally will reset. So the body has this innate intelligence, innate healing system that we have to learn how to activate. And once we activate it, the body can recover from all sorts of things. So it's really about taking that message forward. It's led to, you know, me being really dedicated to bring this message to the world. And I never really focused on the money or success or any of it. And all it all happened as a result of just not being able to help myself do what I was doing. So talk to me about sleep. Yeah. So sleep is something that, you know, has been uh, unfortunately uh, shortchanged. Uh, we were sleeping an hour or two less than we did 100 years ago as a nation. Uh, we probably are meant to sleep, you know, seven, eight, nine hours a night. And when we don't, it has huge effects on our health uh, from chronic inflammation to cancer, diabetes, increasing hunger, appetite, weight. Uh, our ability to function, engage and connect and be present is so dependent on our quality of sleep. And we are doing everything to disrupt it. The constant use of our screens, particularly at night. The, I had a patient the other night, she's like, I'm three different sleep medication. I'm like, what's going on? She's not prescribed by me. And she was like, well, you know, I got kids. And then after that, I have to work. So I like work until midnight and then I go to bed. And I'm like, on my computer, my phone, I'm like, yeah. And then you lay down and you expect the body to shut off. You can't do that. So I think it's important for people to develop, you know, good sleep rituals and, and figure out what the cause of sleep issues are if they have them. But, you know, for example, in my bedroom, I have a, a blackout shade on the windows. I have earplugs and eye shades if I need them. I have a super comfy bed because, you know, we spend a third of our life there. I invested in a comfortable mattress. I usually wind down at night. I get off my computer and phone at least a couple hours before bed, often take a hot bath, do a little stretching yoga, read a little bit. And then my body just sort of calms down. You can't go 100 miles an hour and then just go stop. And I think that's that's part of what our culture encourages, but it's really detrimental to our health. And good quality sleep is important to a good quality of life. So when it comes to all these amazing practices, is there a threshold? Like, of course, we'd all want to do this 100% of the time, but the reality is we won't. It's the 80-20, right? Will I eat great most of the time? Yeah. Like, will I occasionally have ice cream or go off the rails? <laughs> yeah. Like, do I not drink 90% yeah. of the time? Yeah, but occasionally I have two or three tequilas. For sure. So it's not the thing you do occasionally. It's what you do on a regular basis. Cool. I love to know that. And the thing for me that knocks me off course is like wanting to be 100% and feeling like if I'm not 100%, then I'm not doing it at all. <laughs> don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. You know, sometimes I don't get to exercise for a few days. It's okay. It's and okay. that doesn't mean I'm just going to give it up for good. No, <laughs> you know. So, Dr. Hyman, you've got this new book. It's called Young Forever. It's about longevity. What do you feel like you're not getting to share enough that people would benefit from hearing? You know, what really I'm excited about this book is that I think I, I hope I conveyed was that we all have the capacity to engineer our way through understanding our bodies to work with them better. I mean, most of us did not get an owner's manual, right? 
Most of us know better how to operate our iPhones and computers than we do know how to operate our bodies. And this is really what I want people to understand is that you are a biological organism. You need certain things. Certain things don't agree with you. It's there's no one way to do it all, but there's just principles that if you follow, you can activate your body's own innate longevity switches and deal with so much suffering that you might have or that you want to avoid. And what do you notice that people are able to do once they do kind of overcome this or move past this and into the thriving space? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it is about, you know, if you're burdened by illness and disability and brain fog and stomach issues and joint pains and whatever it is you got, diabetes, it's hard for you to get through life. It's hard for you to be a contribution. And, you know, I think if you can access the part of you that is healthy, then you want to lean more into life. You can be a better parent, a better partner, a better colleague at work. You can give your gifts to the world in ways that you might not have imagined were possible. And, and that's what gives meaning and purpose. So at the end of the day, it's really all about us getting to learn how do we elevate our human community. You know, Common said in one of his songs, where are you going to put your one grain of spiritual sand on the universal scales of humanity? You know, so for me, that's it. Where do I get to put my one grain of spiritual sand rather than be like, a weight, but be uplifting. And and I don't have any illusions because, you know, this planet is you know going to blow up when the sun blows up in 2 billion years if we don't kill ourselves off from some other thing like climate change in the meantime. But Positive while ending. we're here, we might, as well, we might as well continue to Even if you completely cure, if you completely cure death. Things still going to blow we're up. We're all still going <laughs> to, you know, get annihilated in, in a couple right. of billion years. So, you know, from a couple of billion years old, it might be ready to go. Who knows? Um, okay, Dr. Hyman, I will have you answer these three statements for me. Better humans are? Better humans are more loving humans. <laughs> Love that. Better work is? Better work is work that gives you joy. And a better world has? A better world has more connection and community and love and play. Before it blows up in two billion years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> that was Dr. Mark Hyman. New York Times bestselling author and international leader in the field of functional medicine. Also, the author of the new book, Young Forever. One big thing before we go. What I love about Mark's work is that it's simple and it's focused on giving us the resources we need to thrive. It's lifestyle, not diet. It's self-reliant instead of focused on internal fixes. It's self-love and possibility, not shame. And it's 80-20, not perfectionism. For me, when it comes to well-being and prioritizing it, sometimes I have to remind myself to come back to what I know works. I get out of routine. So self-compassion is really key here. It's okay, in fact, it's normal to fall off the wagon. Just get back on. All right, here's to living vibrantly for as long as we're here. If this conversation got you thinking about longevity, share it with someone who might benefit from exploring a lifestyle of better food, sleep, peace, or exercise and help other people like you find our show by leaving us a rating before you go. Even better, write a one-sentence review telling me what you learned from Dr. Mark Hyman. And as always, you can find me on LinkedIn writing about human potential and meaningful living. In the Arena is a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Alexis Ramdow and Rafa Fariha. Asaf Kidron makes sure we sound good in the studio. Joe DiGiorgi mixed our show. Enrique Montalvo is the executive producer of LinkedIn Editorial Productions. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of LinkedIn Original Audio and Video. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Leah Smart. Thanks for coming with me, and I'll see you next week.